Goedemorgen, good morning. This is Fintech Cappuccino, the Saturday morning podcast about the why and purpose of all things Fintech. The show is jointly hosted by Brian Verbachem, CEO of RedSnap, and my name is Connie Dorstein. I'm the co-founder of Bankify. Welcome. Hey Brian, it's Connie. Hey Con. Guess who I've got for our podcast? Uh, tell me. Chris Skinner. No, you're kidding me. He's going to join us from uh, Warsaw. He's going to drop out of an airplane to make to meet us here you're in Amsterdam. Absolutely kidding me. No. How does he do that? Basically, you know, free couldn't refuse, and um, it's. I think it's also because I, I said to him, it's not going to be yet another one on the latest and the greatest. We're really going to have a slightly wider conversation. We're going to talk political science, philosophy. Uh, what's happening in the world, what's happening in fintech, and try and put some, wrap some context around it and some why. Okay, so we have Chris Skinner off guard. Absolutely, the ever-curious Chris Skinner is going to share his curiosity with us. That's fantastic, Connie. Congratulations. Speak to you soon, okay? I need to get on my bike. Okay, well, get on your bike then. Sweat hard. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Our guest today is the godfather of fintech, author, commentator, and antagonizer. It can only be Chris Skinner. Morning, Chris. What a great song. Why did you choose this one for a Saturday morning? I just love the feel of the song and the fact that they got an orchestra behind them and not just a band. And the theme of the song, which is, you know, throw those curtains wide, one day like this is all I need to survive. Oh, well, that's amazing. You're actually listening, listening to the lyrics. That's quite rare for men. Apparently, um, according to you. Okay. (laughs) Hey, Chris, so what do you normally do on a Saturday morning? Uh, there's no normal Saturday morning and I'm always um, traveling around the world. So you know, if I eventually find my way home, then if I am at home, I'll just relax, uh, maybe go for a run or a cycle, um, play with my kids. Uh, the normal things people do. I've got two little boys that are three years old, which uh, when people see my gray hair, they're quite surprised by that. But uh, they're, they're at the stage now that they're quite fun and they're actually uh, learning how to annoy me. Okay, that sounds interesting. Hey, and looking back on the week, what news caught your special attention this week? Well, this week's been interesting because there's been lots of uh, climate change activism um, in the UK. And uh, I've been writing and thinking a lot about um, environmental uh, issues for that reason. Um, and one of the things that struck me is a headline is that um, since 1988, uh, 70% of the emissions that damage the planet have been e- emitted by 100 companies. And if banks stopped investing in those 100 companies, we could change the world overnight. And it's really the banking system that's uh, funding the environmental damage to this planet. So I think that's a big issue which um you know because i spend all my time looking at finance that's yeah. top of my mind but it is it is a big issue because um i think that in general governments you see governments sort of trying to put green taxes onto the sort of regular consumer in a man in the street um 
And I think they just do that because it's easier than to tax corporations and go through the pain of doing that. And secondly, they're all about like, oh my God, we've got to sort of change our behavior. But if you just look at the facts of life, that is just never going to sort of meet the goal because we will travel more. It's in, it's, in our, it's in our veins these days. We shower longer. We get more people. We eat more. You know, it's, that, that is almost inevitable. And all the kids that protest and go on the streets. You know, yesterday I, I landed at Schiphol and the whole airport is full with young families and children. Everybody's going on the holiday. Nobody stays home. It's all like... I know. Uh, hey, but, but it's an interesting comment, uh, Chris. But um, so are you saying that you want to impose another responsibility on the banks on this one? Well, I, I think it's just that um, if you look at the Gilets Jaunes movement, the Yellow Jackets movement in France, that was a rebellion against taxes on the common people um, that Emmanuel Macron was bringing in arbitrarily um, to create a better planet. And, you know, we may want to give up our use of plastic or um, our use of shopping bags. But at the end of the day, if... 100 companies are creating all the damage to the planet, then it's those 100 companies that we should target, not necessarily the general person on the street. And um, the financial system is you know, behind all of that. W- w- one thing I didn't realize, and I just blogged about it um, this week, was that, um, for example, Barclays Bank is one of the biggest funders of fossil fuel companies. And I think this is an issue that's coming to top of mind. So uh, Connie and I were at a concert last year with Barclay Cards, um, which uh, was hosted by them in Hyde Park in London. A fantastic concert. But this year, um, Neil Young and Bob Dylan have refused to have Barclay Cards support that concert because they're saying you guys um, invest in fossil fuel companies. We won't be al- allowing you to sponsor us because we don't agree with your views. Wow, that goes far. It goes, that goes far. Hey, and, and talking about the future anyway, now we're talking about uh, the future. So did you uh, read the book of Homo Deus? No. No. Why not? <laughs> I don't like to read depressing books. I, I mean, I, I read the reviews and, yeah, I, was, I, mean, I am a big fan of um, Yuval Noah Hariri, the author, and Sapiens, which is the book that everyone, I think, caught sight of. And I use Sapiens as a backdrop towards digital human um, because in the first chapter around how humanity was formed, you know, the structure of what Yuval Noah Hariri uh, outlined in Sapiens is a fundamental backdrop to how humanity survived and Homo sapiens became dominant, Um, which if you don't know the whole story, it's in brief that we got a voice, we got a larynx, we got the ability to communicate and therefore we created shared beliefs and myths and legends that we could all abide by, which other forms of humanity didn't have because they didn't have the voice. Um, but Homodeus is looking more towards the future and it's a very depressing future from the reviews I read, um, which is that basically we'll have um, superhumans who are the uber rich, who have designer babies and have a fantastic life. And then the rest of the humanity becomes an underclass. So, um, Chris, you, you already uh, referenced the book, um, The Digital Human, and uh, that was sort of the last uh, book that came out. If you look now at the humans, and, and we talk about this, this a lot, and for instance, um, China. I just read that the average Chinese person, so the average, we're not talking teenagers here, average Chinese person spends around six to six and a half hours a day on his mobile phone. Um, I see women walking babies. And in the old days, you had eye contact with your baby when you were walking your baby. And kids loved that because that's how they learn to communicate and how they start to love and trust people. And now you see your mom pushing the pram with one hand, the other hand, she's looking at her phone. 
I'm a very modern woman, but I really find that a very worrying trend. How do you how do you look at this whole fascination with a device and what it will do to our brain and to our, you know, our human life? That's a difficult one because we we don't know the outcome of unintended consequences. And right now we do live in a world that's becoming very digital and we're all attached to our digital connections, particularly our mobile. Um, And parents have different attitudes. So I see quite a number of parents who uh, stick an iPad in front of their baby and that's the way they keep the baby quiet whilst they can play on their their phone. Um, I kind of don't agree with that as a you know, personal thing, because I'd rather that you had contact with your child. um, And that's physical contact rather than digital contact. Um, But I think we're moving into a world where, yeah, kids are going to grow up with all this technology uh, from birth, and they're going to be quite adept and used to being in that world. Is that bad for them? Science hasn't worked out yet, whether it's good or bad for them. Um, And in fact, science is divided so i see quite a lot of research saying kids shouldn't have uh, ipads and, and phones and shouldn't be using technology from an early age and i see alternative research saying but it has no negative consequences no. now for me the trust thing is very important because we know that children build their trust through the first you know in the first four years they start to trust yeah, you, yeah, humans. And so <laughs> I trust I, my Skype mother. <laughs> I trust my Skype mother. So I think that I think it's a tough one. Chris, we were talking books. Um, I cannot imagine you're not working on a new one. So are you happy to lift the veil on that one and tell us a little bit about it, about your plans? But can we first answer the question, how do you write books? You're traveling all around or how do you do this? So for those who know me, they know that I write a daily blog and I write the daily blog whilst I'm sitting in airports between destinations. Um, And often what I'm writing is actually covertly content towards my next book. And so every two years I edit what I've written over the last two years into the next book. And uh, the, the theme of the next book is already therefore covertly on my blog, but overtly for this discussion over fintech cappuccino Um, it's all about doing digital and I got fed up with a lot of people saying that banks is rubbish they're stupid they don't get digital transformation they can't transform they can't change they're going to all die you know you read this or hear this all the time from a lot of commentators I just thought this is not true you know there's a lot of banks um, that are trying really hard to change um, and there's actually not a lot of banks that are changing effectively but there are some and so I picked out um, a number and the number that I thought were really doing digital well uh, I could count on less than two hands um, because there's not that many that are doing it really well Um, but there are some so JP Morgan Chase, ING, um, BBVA, DBS, China Merchants Bank um, are five that have joined my project and I've been interviewing them, meeting with their people, uh, talking about what have they learned about digital transformation, what that they can share with everyone else as lessons that are, you know, how we could all transform into, into digital companies, digital banks. Um, because I felt that, you know, that there's not enough companies that are getting the plaudits for trying to do it well. And there are some that I think are doing it well. Um, and it is a huge challenge because effectively you're taking the 
industrial era structure of an old company that's been cemented in place with technology and breaking it to pieces and transforming it. And that's really difficult. It's a very hard thing to do. If you look back at your, um, I mean, we've known each other for a very long time. Um, what was the moment when this sort of light bulb in your head went on and you transformed into thinking, you know, this is going to be my thing. I'm going to write observe, make comments about this financial service industry and how it changes. What was, was it an event or did that slowly creep upon you as well? Um, I mean, I've always been looking at the future of financial services and how technology is changing yeah. the industry. Um, and the light bulb that started that momentum was actually um, before we met. So it's a long time ago. Um, and it was uh, a feedback of a presentation I gave And someone said, tell me something that I don't know. And I realized that I'd presented you know, a really good analysis, understanding of the financial industry, but I hadn't actually talked about anything that was new. And what we don't know is the future. So that's what switched me on to saying, I've got to focus on you know, with the future. And that's what I've been doing now for um, 30 years, showing my age. Um, but the big moment of change was um, when Digital Bank came out, which I... Uh, produced in uh, beginning of 2014. And I think the reason why that was a light bulb moment, not for me, but for people who didn't know me, is that I, I produced a book with digital in the title and bank. Yeah. And people went, oh, that's actually what we need to talk about because yeah. that's what's happening. You know, we're becoming digital banks. Yeah. yeah. Hey, and you're mentioning five banks, right? And, and um, so you saw the whole fintech movement come up. So do you think those banks have time enough to keep up with change or do you think that the fintech is going to fill their space in future or will it be a combination what do you think um it's a combination and i don't see banks disappearing um not in the near term long term you never know um and some banks will disappear because they don't have the ability to change and adapt well enough or fast enough to what's happening with technology and with fintech Um, but a lot of banks have now woken up to the fintech um, uprising, um, which is only 10 years old, so it's pretty new. Um, in fact, the first fintech company I ever encountered was on March the 30th, 2005. And I have that in my head because that was the, a meeting of a company that was launching in London called Zopa, which is yeah. peer-to-peer lending. Yeah. Um, and I chaired the meeting. And I just remember this idea that this guy had of an eBay for money. And we all went, this is madness. You know, it'll never take off. And that's one of the biggest consumer lenders in Britain. Um, and so it's a very young movement of fintech. And a lot of fintech isn't really doing banking. It's doing payments or robo-advisory or um, you know, peer-to-peer lending. It's very niche. Um, and full-service banking... Um, for the banks that get that, um, they will partner with these companies. They will, and they should actually mentor and nurture and work with these companies. And that's where I see the combination, which is the hybrid bank of the future, where the bank of the future is one that doesn't try and do everything themselves, but they curate and integrate and aggregate an awful lot of partners who do things that are specialized, but they do that specialism really well and they bring that specialism to their yeah. customer. And one, one thing that um, always eggs me on is this whole talk of banks and with partnering with fintechs and partnering sort of holds the promise of some level of equality, huh? if you truly are partners in a relationship, which of course is never the case. Um, so how do you think that that can really change? Because I think they're very often uh, slightly empty promises. So if you say partnering, you know, it's... It, 
very soon they so love the fintech they either want to sort of buy it and then bring it in and then behavior changes again um how, what would be have you seen banks let me put this differently which banks are doing the partnering bit really well well i mean a lot of banks are talking about collaboration and co-creation and partnering yeah uh, and it's very difficult because banks are control freaks by nature and they like to do everything themselves yeah. Uh, and they don't like to partner. Um, so that idea of open collaboration is very difficult. Um, and in context, I talk about fintech as being a parent-child relationship and that the parent is the financial markets and yeah. financial community. Very old, very regulated, very structured, very stable, very, you know, and they want to keep the markets like the family home. You know, yeah. We want this to be resilient and secure. And then kid is the technology. They suddenly the jump in there and they kick everything and they smash everything and they break everything or they want to change the world. Yeah. You know? And so the, parents role is actually to nurture the child and that's what the financial community's role should yeah. be with the tech community um collaboration in that context is not partnering it's mentoring um and that's where i think a lot of banks get don't un, quite get it right now because they see it as um you need to do something for us and it, and I, you know i mean a lot of fintech startups they're, they're huge frustration because they can't find anybody in the bank who can make a decision no. and if they can find anybody in the bank who can make a decision then it takes at least two years to get a decision which is too long for a startup for, for a company. startup way too, long, way too long but here's exactly i love your analogy and i i remember when i had my son uh during the night the doctor came back and he said to me you know the key thing with children is not to unlearn them too much uh, so <laughs> So that's probably a good message for the banks as well in this context. What what would you like to learn and not unlearn your kids looking at the world they're growing up in? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, I want my kids to learn that they can be whatever they want to be and achieve whatever they want to achieve. And I would support them to the end of the world to do that. Uh, what I'd like to unlearn is the negativity of this world. And you, know, I, I spent many years before I had children thinking the ideal, um, you know, the reason why it's ideal not to have kids is this world is going to shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. being honest yeah. uh, climate change and environmental damage and corporate um, you know uh, uh, ethos and government apathy uh, and the corruption of this world is terrible and so that was my justification yeah. for not having kids so I'd like to unlearn that which is like you know in the next generation can we create a world where politicians aren't corrupt and businesses work for society Yeah, and, and we're all less cynical, eh? which is the great thing of having yeah. kids, is that you have to let go of your cynicism. Yeah, and they yeah. Uh, and they will come up with solutions for their own problems, right? In their own generations. So I like in your book that you have a, a pretty um, positive outlook, right, on future, financial inclusion. So also in your book, you um, you're describing the end financial, so the Chinese case, um, which I actually pretty like, because we tend to look to the West, as Europeans, but you look at the East, and that's and I like that. So, um, do you think an end financial platform, like which is embedded in the daily life of the Chinese, do you think something similar is possible for the European lifestyle or for the European people? Well, I, again, I wrote the other day that um, what's happening in China is the exception and not the rule. And that it won't happen in the West because when you see uh, Alibaba with Ant Financial, which is a sister company, 
um, and Tencent and WeChat. Um, what they've created is an integrated equivalent of Amazon, Facebook and PayPal. And the regulators won't allow that in Europe or America because they see it as being too powerful. Uh, and equally, um, it's a structure that integrating social, commercial and financial is, is not a good thing because they are different markets that need different regulations. The average tech company, for example, in the US deals with 27,000 regulations. The average financial company deals with 128,000, five times more. So the regulatory structures are very different between social, financial and commercial. Uh, although having said that with what's happening with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and privacy, you know, that's going to change. Um, but, in, but in China, they've allowed, because it's a brand new um, structure, this integrated world, um, which is social, commercial, financial integrated into Tencent and Alibaba. Um, and the reason why I like what Ant Financial is doing uh, with Alipay and Alibaba is that they're not Chinese, they're global. Uh, and I think we've just missed the fact that they're global um, because we're not looking. Um, and when when you look at what they're actually doing, you know the, the the technology scale of what they're doing is absolutely incredible. It blows me away. And a lot of the reason why they've achieved that is that they started with nothing 20 years ago. In fact, it's only 15 years ago, really, that they started doing this. And so they've fundamentally changed their world and now our world using technology, which is um, radically different from anything from the US. So, Chris, um, it probably didn't escape you. It probably didn't escape you that we are having huge debates about China and the trust factor. Uh, not a good, uh, recently, uh, we figured, we found out that they basically had broken into uh, our darling company in the Netherlands, ASML, and um, that was pure theft. Um, so there's a big debate now in Dutch politics and around the world, like, can we, you know, get you, who are we, and companies like that involved with 5G and, you know, trust is a big deal. What is... What is your view on that? Because obviously, Netherlands is far too small for the Chinese to worry about us. But what should be our approach in Europe? Well, they do worry about you. And that when in the Dutch parliament, there was a question around Alipay and the power of Alipay to look at citizen state in the Netherlands, uh, Alipay got in touch with me and said, you know, we've seen this being debated in the Dutch parliament. Can you help us in terms of bridging this and presenting uh, how we actually work? Because we don't actually analyse or control any data. And they gave a written response to the Dutch politicians to say, this is actually how Alipay works and you know, our um, basis of and foundation of data privacy, um, which does not affect any Dutch citizens, um, regardless of any activity we have in Europe. So... They are aware and they are concerned. Uh, and I think it's a little bit like one of the comments that came out of the Alipay me meetings I had, which I, I stayed in my head, and mainly be because it resonates with my, my own feeling, which is in Europe, uh, we trust Americans because they're Americans. And a lot of us were raised on their culture and their language <laughs> and their TV shows. Um, <laughs> and, and we don't trust the Chinese because we don't understand their language. We don't understand, we don't understand their culture. Uh, um, if it was the other way around, then we'd probably love the Chinese and hate the Americans. Yeah, and, and trust is, in Chinese culture, I've been told, a massive, massive thing. Tis. It's Tis. big. Well, one of the big things, again, that they said is that um, in Europe and America, you tend to start that you trust someone until they can't be trusted. Yeah. Whereas in China, you don't trust anybody until they can be trusted. Okay. 
Yeah. So that's something we have to learn. Yeah, I like uh, I like the Chinese too because uh, I lived myself in uh, in Hong Kong for four years, and um, which is not really China, of course. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, the people are so used to digital. They're so used to the government. They're you know they're not afraid of it. It looks like. No, they and embrace I, and it. I, I think the incredible thing. So take Hong Kong, which used to be British, um, and it still maybe partly is, but. Now it's becoming more Chinese. Definitely becoming more um, Chinese now, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, I was in Shanghai interviewing China Merchants Bank for the new book. And um, they took me around their museum of the bank, which, you know, banks do have museums. Um, and in 1980, there was absolutely nothing in Shanghai. It was a fishing village with 300,000 people. Today, it's one of the tier one Chinese cities with 22 Amazing. million people. Amazing. Yeah, and to, to me, that's the phenomena of China, which is just yeah. in our lifetime, it's risen from nothing to a global superpower. Uh, and of course, the Americans don't like it. Of course, Donald Trump doesn't like it. But it, you, you can't stop it. It's happened. So live with it and work out how to work with it. Well, yeah. and the infrastructure is, is just sheer amazing. And, you totally. know, if I do presentations in, in America, I, I often use it as a teaser and I have two highways. And, you know, that, and then one looks a bit crooked and one looks really sleek. And you say, so which one is America and which one's Africa? They always get it wrong. Yeah. But that's the one thing that worries me immensely if I travel through the US now is that the lipid state of the infrastructure is just well, worrisome. We talk about legacy and yeah. Europe and America is full of legacy infrastructure yeah. and legacy economies. Yeah. And it's best illustrated to me by the terrible crash of the Italian bridge two years ago, which was a, an example of legacy that was not, is not maintained well. Yeah. Um, and to me, China and Africa and India and you know, the Southern Hemisphere is seeing this massive rise of nations that starting with no legacy and brand new infrastructure and therefore creating new business models yeah. and new ways of doing things. Yeah. And I, I gave this message to the BAI conference that you and I know really yeah. well um, in 2006 about China would be the new world and America was legacy. They really hated me. They kind of booed me off the stage, but you know, 13 years later, it's true. It it's is true. true. It has become true. Hey, something totally different, uh, Chris. Um, have you seen the World Happiness Index? The latest yes. one? So um, was, the UK is number 15 and Poland is number 40. And you live in Poland, right? So why do you live there? It's cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's straight, pretty straightforward. Although, a longer answer, if you want it, is that um, my wife is Polish and she wanted to be around the family. Um, but it, also, it's interesting, you know, Poland um, is a economy that's um, the sixth largest U European economy. A lot of people don't realize that. 1990, it was the 25th largest European economy. And so how has it come from 25th to 6th in the last 30 years? And it's all about the financial system. Oh, okay. Uh, and that the government and the financial system created a um, open capability for investment and a bridge between Russia and Europe. Um, and they've been very successful in doing that. And when you live there, yeah, it is cheap. But um, at the same time, it's, again, a new economy, new infrastructure, and it's leapfrogging a lot of the legacy of the rest of Europe. Yeah. So let's jump to your other nationality, Chris, and we can't avoid the topic. Uh, you know, I lived in London for a long time. My son was born there. I love the Brits. It's my second 
country, my second home. Um, Brexit pains us all beyond belief. And and so so just so you know, you now have a, a home in Poland as well. There's always a home for you here in Holland, <laughs> uh, regardless of uh, the, the you know the battle uh, we had in 1667. Let's not talk about that. What do you think? I'm not going to ask you what you think is going to happen because nobody knows. Do you see any impact yet? on the whole fintech glorious stage, London, uh, fintech capital of Europe. Do you think that's going to change things? Um, uh, well, I mean, to put it in context of my own emotions, um, on the 21st of June 2016, I was asked on stage which way the Brexit vote would go, and I said, it'll go remain, I bet my yeah. house on it. Uh, and I haven't lost my house because no one took the bet. Yeah. Um, but having said that, the vote was to leave. And as the Germans call it, it's called Brexit, yeah. which is, you know, it really is a bad decision. And I think a lot of us know that. Um, or rather those who are informed know that. Um, in terms of where that's impacting on the economy, um, from a fintech viewpoint, it's had zero impact so far. You know, the, the investments in fintech startups and the fintech Uh, ecosystem in the UK has been at a record level and it's booming. Yeah. Uh, the Q1 2019, the whole of 2018, the numbers are outstanding. In fact, it's got to stage now that from a fintech perspective, UK and London is beating Silicon Valley. So, yeah. you know, whatever anyone thinks about Brexit, it's not imp impacting the fintech ecosystem right now. Will it in the future? Um, I think the only thing that's going to impact is um the uh, war for talent yeah well that's what i was thinking because the, the talent exactly. pool you know if we restrict the freedom movement of peoples then the talent pool is going to be that's impacted. going to be a, a big a big issue yeah so, so that's yeah. a big that's the biggest question yeah. um but we don't know the answer to that yet because we don't know what's going to happen no so talking about talent pools um i heard you're a big uh, spurs fan right so basically they bought half of the ajax team all the talents away from uh, from ajax and they play next week so um What's your outlook? Come on, you Spurs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's going to be a Spurs-Liverpool final, obviously. Yeah, you think so. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to bet you on it. <laughs> I'm not going to bet my house on that one. No, you better not. No, you'd better not. And, and, don't buy the, and don't buy the other half of our very beautiful, young, homegrown Ajax team, please. You know, yes. Leave them a little bit in place because we don't want to see that happening. So um, it looks like we've got to sort of start rounding off, uh, Chris. And we've still got heaps and heaps to talk about. So you will have to come back. Uh, but that's fine because Schiphol is a good is a good airport hub. What, what's next? What are where are you heading off after this? What are you going to do this next week? Oh well, I'm always traveling, as uh, I mentioned. So I'm going back to um, Poland from here and then to London uh, for the Innovate Finance Global Summit that's coming up next week, um, and then to Boston for a big credit union conference. Um, and after that, I've got trips um, around Australia and Middle East, Europe, um, Malaysia. So it's the constant challenge of uh, destroying the planet by traveling on planes. Yes, well, it, it, it apparently is. But you're also giving us a lot of inspiration. So I think we can make, we can make an exception for you in this case. Uh, um, inspiration on Chris, you can go to thefinancer.com read his books, buy his books, and most importantly, follow the blog. Thank you so much, Chris. We'll thank you so much. See you thank soon. Thank you, Connie and Brian. And thank you for listening to Fintech Cappuccino. Don't want to miss another cup? 
Subscribe to our podcast via Spotify, iTunes, or where you like to listen to your podcast. And please give us a like, a review. So many more Fantech Cappuccino lovers can find us then. Have, Have a, a good, good weekend. weekend. Just keep me hanging on You just keep me hanging